there was a rabbi, and he was walking along the shores of the Sea of Galilee late one afternoon as the sun was setting, and he was alone. So he was doing it. Rabbis often do when they have a few moments to themselves. He was reciting that day's portion of scripture to himself. And so in his preoccupation and in the gathering gloom, he missed the turn in the path that it would take him back towards his village. And after a few moments, in the increasing darkness, he ended up at the foot of a stone wall. He'd come to the local Roman garrison. And as he was standing there, he heard a voice shout to him from above, Who are you? What are you doing here? And the rabbi was startled. And he said, What? And the Roman sentry said again, Who are you? What are you doing here? And the rabbi paused, and this time he replied back with more confidence. How much do they pay you to ask me these questions? And now it was the Romans' turn to be kind of put off his guard a little bit. And he said, three denarii a week, Jew. Why? Well, said the rabbi, I'll give you double if you stand outside my door every morning and ask me those same questions before I leave home. Who are you? And what are you doing here? It strikes me that there are a few questions that are more profound, are more important. I wonder if you know the answers to those questions this morning. Who are you? And what are you doing here? I think we live in a culture that has no idea how to answer those questions adequately. This is one of the reasons why so many of us spend so much time and effort on money on amusing ourselves, amusing ourselves to death, as somebody once put it. A couple of years ago, I came across something that I'd never heard of before. It's by a French company that specialized in what they called designer abductions. For $1,200, uh, these folks from this company will come and kidnap you when you least suspect it, bind you, gag you, blindfold you, and hold you captive for several hours meant to appeal to adrenaline junkies so you know what it's like to be kidnapped. Now, I don't mean any offense to those of you who have purchased or are planning on purchasing <laughs> a designer abduction. What a dumb idea! But see, this is what we're driven to when we don't know the answers to those questions. Who are you? A question of an identity. And what are you doing here? A question of activity. So one of the things that many of us do, particularly in our culture, is that it's about just amusing ourselves to death. It's about one more car, one more vacation, one more hobby. Those things are fined as hobbies, as side pursuits. But when those things become the answers to our questions, who are you and what are you doing here, we see how shallow they are. If we were to hold your funeral in here this week, God forbid, but if we were, what would I be able to say in response to those questions about you? Oh, this person, this person was just a golfer, just a tennis player, just somebody who loved to hunt, just somebody who loved to fish, just a runner. Hear me, those things are fine. There's nothing wrong with those things. In fact, I think those are good things that God means for us to enjoy. But is that how you answer those questions? Who are you and what are you doing here? Some of us 
answer those questions through our success, through pursuit of certain things. And in a place like Dallas, with a lot of very talented and driven people, many of us are actually able to achieve the level of success that we want. I was thinking of success this week when I've been watching the Olympics. Like most of you, I've been following the Olympics, and I saw Gabby Douglas, that little girl, I think she's 16, win the gold medal for the women's gymnastics, individual performance. And then, of course, Michael Phelps, I think last night or yesterday afternoon was his final competitive swim. These people are extremely driven. I don't know a whole lot about high-level professional athletes, but I know enough to know that that's what they have been doing with their lives for their whole lives. Year after year after year, they have been single-mindedly pursuing an Olympic gold medal or medals. And that's fine. But I was thinking this week, you know, this gymnastics girl, she's 16, and I think most of these gymnasts have to retire even before the age of 20, so perhaps this is her only Olympics. And Michael Phelps is not even yet 30, and now he's retired from his sport. And I'm wondering how they're going to answer those questions in the days going forward. Are they going to be like the high school jock who always lives back for the glory days 30 years before when he was on the football team and caught the touchdown pass. It's fine to remember our our past, and it's fine to be grateful for our successes, but is that what we use to answer those questions? Because if that is the case, and I think some of you know this very well, it's not enough. It's an inadequate answer. I'm interested in this phenomenon that we find in our culture called extended adolescence. You've heard about this. These are the People in their 20s, sometimes even in their 30s, who aren't really growing up. They still live in the basement, still play video games all day, still move from relationship to relationship, don't really contribute anything to society, just like children or teenagers. And I think one of the reasons why we find people of my generation leaving such frivolous lives is because they know deep down that the the answers to those questions that society is providing or proposing are not adequate. They know that You can't just turn on the television or open your web browser and just get off the news an adequate answer to the question of who are you and what are you doing here. But they're not being provided with anything more substantial. And so they sort of reject it all. I think we see the same phenomenon among the high school kids in our local high school over here at Woodrow Wilson High School. You'll know that in Dallas, the graduation rate is very poor and teen pregnancy is very high and so on. And a lot of our schools have gang problems. I think it's because uh, those kids are aware that there are no good answers to those questions being proposed, and so they turn to sex and violence as, as an attempt to gain some sort of foundation, and yet, of course, those things are always betraying them. It's sad. So can I ask you again, who are you, and what are you doing here? It won't surprise you to hear me say that I believe that the answers to those questions are found in the message of the church, contained in the scriptures. If you were to ask me what my favorite book in the Bible were, uh, is, uh, there's lots of different ones, but right now, some of my favorites are 1st and 2nd Corinthians, the Corinthian letters that Paul wrote. Corinth is a small city, was a small city in ancient Greece, and the Apostle Paul started a new church there. Then he went away to start other churches, and so He wrote some letters back to the church in Corinth. The people in Corinth are called Corinthians. He wrote some letters back to them, and we have them contained in our New Testament. We call them 1 and 2 Corinthians. This is from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And I think Paul is getting right to the heart of answering these questions of identity. Who are you? 
and activity. What are you doing here? This is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse, verse 16. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. And all this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the ministry, the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. So we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And then he sums it up with this sentence. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. May the Lord add his richest blessing to the reading and hearing of this word. Let's pray. Lord, take my words and speak through them today. Take our thoughts and think through them. And take our hearts and set them on fire for you and for your world. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Who are you? And what are you doing here? You're not going to find the answer to that question in an adequate way on the back page of the Wall Street Journal, on the cable news shows. You're not going to find it, perhaps, in what you majored in in college or even in what your paycheck says at the end of every month. I think the answers to those questions, which are very important, can be found right here in this message from Paul to us. Paul uses this great word. It's the word reconciliation. For Paul, reconciliation is like a, like a, it's a touchstone. One word means so much. It means so many other things. For Paul, reconciliation is like one of these hyperlinks on the internet that you click on and it takes you to all sorts of other things. When you and I talk about reconciliation, we have too low a view of it. We think reconciliation is when, you know, you ran over your neighbor's dog and you buy him a new dog, okay? I hope that didn't happen to you, but if it did, I hope it's a, new, a good new dog. We think of reconciliation in small in small ways. But for the Apostle Paul, reconciliation is cosmic. And we just are going about to pray for it in a few minutes. In the words of the Lord's Prayer, how does it go? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And some of you perhaps still reconcile your checkbook. What do you do? Reconciliation is about matching things, making the two things come together, mirror each other. So for Paul, reconciliation is not just about two people getting along who were, had a fractious relationship in the past. Reconciliation is God's plan to reconcile the world to himself, to make the world the way he wants it to be, to let his will be done on earth as it currently is in heaven. Reconciliation is what the miracles of Jesus were about. This is why Jesus heals. See, in the reconciled world, when God restores all things, sickness won't be part of the world anymore. And so Jesus heals through his miracles to give us a glimpse of what the reconciliation of God is like. This is why Jesus feeds. When the people were hungry on the lakeside, he fed using a few crumbs of bread and fish. Why? Because in the reconciled world, when the, God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven, there are no more hungry people. This is why Jesus forgives sins. Because in the reconciled world, sins are forgiven, not anymore counted against us. So the Apostle Paul would say, if I were to ask him, who are we and what are we doing here? He'd say, you are people who have been reconciled to God through Christ. 
And now, in fact, you are ambassadors for Christ, carrying the ministry and the message of reconciliation. Sometimes in the church, we think that it's the pastor's job, the professional Christians like me who are supposed to do the work. And so as long as the Cowboys aren't playing and as long as uh, it's not a nice weekend to go to our lake house, we'll come to church, put a few bucks in the offering plate, but that's our role. We're essentially passive participants and it is the professional Christians and a few weird volunteers who kind of do the work of the church. (laughs) Perhaps you grew up in a church like that and if so... I suspect there weren't many people who were very engaged in the work because that was the attitude of the church. In fact, I'd suggest that the reason the church in America is the way it is in so many places, dead, lifeless, boring, retreating, losing, failing, is because we've had that mindset. On the contrary, the message of the church is, summed up in Ephesians 4.12, the role of the pastors and the leaders and the apostles is to build up the people for the work of ministry. See, I'm not that concerned about what you do for your day job. Now, some of you perhaps are engaged in work which you need to change and work in another direction. Maybe you're doing things that aren't good. Maybe you're doing things that are hurting the world. But probably you're engaged in work that's just neutral. It's just neutral. See, you can be an insurance agent just on your own just to make a buck. You can be a physician just on your own. You can be a teacher. You can be a stay-at-home dad or a mom. You can be a bricklayer, whatever it is. You can do those things just on your own. Or you could do those things with the idea of being a minister of reconciliation through your day of the work, through your job. What that means to me is with what you have, where you are tomorrow morning, you can be an ambassador for Christ carrying on the message and the ministry of reconciliation. Using the business deals you make, using the sales calls you return, using the interactions you have, To be used by God to bring the world to match God's vision for it. To let God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There was a guy named William Wilberforce. He was born in the uh, mid-18th century in the 1700s. In England, in the north of England, to a wealthy family. He was one of these guys, perhaps you know people like this, who could just do anything. Extremely intelligent and talented, a very engaging and... Uh, effective public speaker. He was elected to parliament at age 21. But he had a conversion experience and he gave his life to Christ. And so anybody who claims to be a Christian is engaged in the ministry of reconciliation and Wilberforce realized that. And he was in, he was confronted with the terrible evil of the international slave trade. We have such chronological snobbery often in the modern world in the 2012. We think we face the hard challenges but Back then, it would have been easier. Slavery was a huge economic engine in the British Empire. The ports of Liverpool and of Bristol and other places along the coast, they had deeply entrenched interests in the international slave trade. It made a lot of people a lot of money. And when money is involved, it's hard to change. So it sounds easy to us, oh, slavery was wrong, they should have ended it. It took people to really sacrifice, to be persecuted for it. One of these people was William Wilberforce. People said he, he could have been something in Parliament. He could have perhaps been the Prime Minister or held a, a high office. But he dedicated his life to the abolition of the international slave trade. And year after year after year, it was defeated. And he was persecuted, and people said, you don't need to take your faith so seriously. I wonder if you've ever heard that. I wonder if you've ever said that. 
You're acting strange. What you believe about this ministry of reconciliation is making you different from other people. And it came at a cost. The Wilberforce persevered. And in 1807, as Parliament rose to its feet in applause, the bill was passed. And Wilberforce just sat there, tears pouring down his cheeks. He had given his life to the ministry of reconciliation. And the slave trade was ended in the British Empire. Now, I like like the example of Wilberforce because he's somebody who wasn't engaged in, like, church work. But he was engaged in the church's work in the world in the ministry of reconciliation. What would it look like if you used the influence that God has given you for a time? You're a steward of what God has currently given you. It's not going to last forever. What would it look like if you used what God has given you and considered yourself an ambassador for Christ? And you saw your mission. You may be a physician, you may be a teacher, you may be a bus driver, but you saw it as your mission to be an ambassador for Christ engaged in the ministry of reconciliation. I know somebody, and he was here at the earlier service today. He's a local business owner in Dallas, and he's in business. But his Ministry, I would call it, would be about a ministry of reconciliation. He does whatever he can to build up his employees, to serve the community. Through his business, to bring about reconciliation. He's not in parliament, he's not famous, his name isn't on the front of a newspaper. But I believe he's an ambassador for Christ, working about the ministry of reconciliation. Now, here's the problem. It's so easy for us to think that's just a nice thing to say. But maybe you're thinking today, come on, this is the real world. It's nice to hear that on Sunday morning. But you don't know what would happen in my industry, in my family, in my neighborhood, if I took that seriously and started living as a minister of reconciliation, an ambassador for Christ. You you can say lots of things about the church. You can throw all kinds of accusations against the faith, but the one thing you cannot say in good conscience is that the message of the faith is removed from the real world. All the early Christians were martyred or persecuted for their faith. There's not an example of history that I can think of of somebody who was working in the ministry of reconciliation on a high level or on a low level who didn't face opposition, opposition, who wasn't persecuted, who wasn't reviled, who didn't lose out on certain contracts, who wasn't considered sort of strange by his neighbors or her neighbors. You say, this is the real world. And I'd say, exactly, and look how it is. In fact, Paul gives us a hint right here of how real how high the stakes are for this message of reconciliation, the ministry of the gospel. He says in verse 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He's talking, of course, about Jesus the Christ, the one who most clearly shows us what the ministry of reconciliation is like, the one who ate with sinners, the one who forgave the unforgivable, the one who healed the sick and fed the hungry and befriended the lonely and proclaimed the truth of God's favor. 
That same one was betrayed, not just by the Romans, not by the religious authorities, but by someone within his inner circle. And was given over to the authorities, was beaten, was crucified, dead, and was buried. But the message of the gospel is not just that you're going to face opposition, is that God, in fact, has overcome the world. And the resurrection of Christ is yet another indication of what the reconciled world of God will be like when God is going to right all wrongs and make all things new. Can I just give you a word of hope this morning? If you're here today and your life is a mess, and, and the truth is, if you're honest, and so rarely are we ever honest, the truth is that if you're honest, you have contributed to the brokenness of the world. The reason that relationship ended, the reason there's that kind of estrangement in your family, the reason your industry is how it is or your office is how it is is because of the choices you have made. If you're here this morning overcome by that, I just want to tell you again the good news that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. I hear all the time, people come to church, they haven't been here for a long time, and they'll say, I thought the lightning was going to strike when I walked through that door. And I love it when people say that, because I want us to be that kind of church. But if you're here today and that's how you feel, I need you to know you don't need to live in fear of that anymore, because God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. So the first bit of good news from this passage, and the first answer to the question of who are you and what are you doing here, is that you're somebody, if you put your faith in Christ, who has been reconciled to Christ and reconciled to God and God's reconciling of the world. You are no longer defined by the brokenness you've caused. You are now defined by the righteousness of God. And now you no longer have to wonder, what am I going to do with my life? Am I going to do this or I'm going to do that? Because in a sense, that's an inconsequential question because the real answer is, whatever you do, wherever you go, you are now engaged as an ambassador for Christ, working through the redemption and the ministry of reconciliation. And one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this today is because we have been so blessed as a church. Honestly, I don't use this term loosely. I think it's a miracle that we've been able to raise the money and get done this building we want to use to reach young people in our community. It's going to open in a couple of weeks. But I'm just worried, you know, because, and some of you say, you say this all the time, I think you can't say it enough. I'm worried that we're going to quickly lose our emphasis on outsiders and others and begin to think more about it for ourselves. See, if you're an ambassador for Christ, an ambassador is somebody who doesn't seek for his own gain or her own gain, but seeks for the gain of the government which sent him or her. An ambassador doesn't worry just about how to make himself or herself comfortable. An ambassador has a message and a mission to carry out. See, we don't exist as a church just so that we can have the temperature the way we want it set in the sanctuary, that we can have the music that tickles our ears, that we can have our own pew, that we can have the right parking space for us. We exist as a church to carry on the ministry of reconciliation. If you're here this morning, you're just visiting, can I perhaps extend an invitation to you to become an ambassador for Christ and be part of God's work here in this place? And if you're already here, part of the church, can I just encourage you again to reconsider and recommit your role in what God is doing? Because God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And he's now given to us the ministry of reconciliation. So regardless of who you are this morning, what you have, what your talents are, what your life has been like, what your catalogs of sins are, you can be a part of what God is doing in the world as he seeks to make the world as it is match the world that it's going to be. 
And you may be here this morning, and you think, there is no way I have that kind of faith, that kind of courage, that kind of love. I can't go to my estranged spouse and offer reconciliation. I don't have that kind of love. I can't go into my community and work with the people who most need to hear the reconciling love of God. I can't work in my industry and be someone who has the kind of courage that's a minister of reconciliation. And I just want to say, that's exactly right. You can't. But God can through you. And in a couple of minutes, we're going to come up here and you're going to come like this. We're going to rip off a piece of bread and say, the body of Christ broken for you. And you're going to tape it and dip it in the cup and say, the blood of Christ shed for you. See, the message of the gospel is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Through Christ, we are given what we need. Not just forgiveness of sins. We're just not made right with God now. In fact, God is empowering us as his ambassadors in the world. And so as we come to receive communion today, I'd like you to think about a few things. First of all, think about what it means that the body of Christ was broken for the world. We don't serve a God who's about triumphalism, about setting ourselves up higher or better than other people. We serve a God who emptied himself even to the point of death on a cross. His body was broken, his blood was spilled. And we remember that and experience that in the sacrament of Holy Communion. But not only that, we serve a God who has risen, who has sent the Holy Spirit to empower his people to do the impossible in the world. It is impossible to love the world, but through the power of God, you can do it. And so you're going to come and receive. And as we're about to say through the words of the liturgy, our prayer is that we would be the body and blood of Christ for the world. And as we receive, the Spirit of Christ will be here. And so, of course, you're eating a small piece of bread, but also consider the power of God nourishing you for the journey and the work of faith. Now, all who are here today are welcome to receive. You do not have to be a member here today. In fact, the words of the liturgy put it like this. Christ our Lord invites to his table all who love him, who earnestly repent of their sin and seek to grow into his likeness. <laughs> Before we do that, it's important for us to be honest about who we are, which is a sinful, broken people. And so we pray the words of confession together. Therefore, let us confess before God and one another. Merciful God, we confess that we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have failed to be an obedient church. We have not done your will. We have broken your law. We have rebelled against your love. We have not loved our neighbors. We have not heard the cry of the needy. Forgive us, we pray, and free us for joyful obedience.